anybody's keeping track, this is module four, session three. And for those of you who are writing papers, this gives you an extra week to get caught up um, because we're going to take two weeks on this. So um, let me see if that'll go forward. Well, we'll let them mess with that. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for a, the, the irony that it's a dark and dreary day outside, but the sun is shining in here. We have the glorious word of God. We have the son of God. We have the spirit of God. And we thank you, Father, for giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have the the body of Christ here beginning to gather together. And we're so thankful to you. I pray that our time this morning would be thrilling to our hearts. But more importantly, Lord, it would turn us into greater worshipers. That our affections, our thoughts would be so heavenward that this earth would begin to fade for us, Lord. I pray, God, that the word that we look at today in this hour in our main worship service and tonight, Lord, would make us more like Christ. And we pray this all for his glory to be a church that would accurately reflect your goodness. Amen. So today is in our uh, Soteriology Part 3 it is the doctrine of election. And so we will get started with taking a little bit of time on uh, some historical views. And first of all, just broadly, what is the doctrine of election? It concerns God's plan in eternity to save sinners. That's what election is about. There are some related concepts that we'll talk about either today or next time predestination and foreknowledge those are important concepts for us and i am still not sure why this is one of the most controversial issues in christian theology the reason i'm not sure why is because it's not even in the top 10 list of the hardest doctrines to prove it's so clear in scripture that the only explanation i have and i'm not an expert on the on the history of interpretation of the doctrine of election But the only explanation I have is that people are naturally humanists and we do not want to give up control. And so that's really the only thing I can see. But scripture is so very clear and not only is the doctrine of election important for us and not only should it not be controversial, uh, it's only controversial if you choose to not believe some of scripture, then it becomes controversial. But not only should it not be controversial, it ought to be central to how we even think. And if you could pick one doctrine which uh, characterized the Reformation, probably at the top of the list would be justification slash regeneration. That would probably be at the top of the list. But a close second or maybe a tie would be the doctrine of election. Because the doctrine of election destroys man-centered salvation. It utterly decimates it. So, we want to spend some time looking first at the historical views of election. I want you to know where you come from. And since we're taking at least two Sundays to look at this, I have the glorious freedom of taking rabbit trails. And we're going to take the first one right now. The liability that the American church in particular has suffered from in the past 50, 60 years um, and going all the way back to the beginning of the charismatic movement in the early 1900s, one of the liabilities that we've suffered from is a lack of connection to history. If, for example, you could draw your spiritual family tree 
you could trace your salvation all the way back to Martin Luther. You could trace your salvation back through to the people who preached the gospel to you, what church group they were part of, what church group they came from. And you could take that all the way back. The inability to do that leaves us vulnerable to start making things up, to start thinking that modern is better, that today is better. We even see that manifested in the worship music of of the church, that a, a song written two weeks ago is better than a song written 200 years ago, and that somehow a song written 200 years ago is antiquated and dusty. Um, one thing that's unusual about Grace Bible Church is that we have children and youth who think hymnals are normal. That's not most of the world. The charismatic movement, you know where their, uh, you know where their spiritual family tree goes back to? About 1903, and then it stops. They're disconnected completely from church history. And so that's why church history is so important for us. And I have noticed as I talk to friends in the ministry Overall, churches that are, are more cognizant, more steeped in the history of our faith tend to be stronger. They tend to not uh, sense that we need to do something innovative. Innovation is the worst thing in the world for the church. And so the reason we're going back to historical views of election is it's important for you to know where we came from. It's important for you to know what the battle lines have been throughout history because they're important. And it's, uh, it, it tells us what the battle lines are now. And basically, they haven't really changed. The one thing that's changed is that uh, in the late 1500s, Arminianism was considered a freak of the Christian faith. Now it's considered normal in, in uh, American circles in particular. So that's, that's what's changed. Um, Calvinist today is synonymous with, with nutcase, with we're the, we're the crazies. Well, all we do is believe scripture. So let's look at the historical views of election and uh, work our way through this part and we'll see how far we get today. Individual conditional election. This is uh, what we might call classical Arminianism. There are several early church fathers held to the view that God chooses those who in their free will choose him. Salvation is synergistic. It's a, it's a working together. We've used that word before. It's a Greek word that means to work together. It's synergistic in that the human will freely cooperates with God's grace. Now, let me, before we go down this little list, some of the people on that list are heroes of the church. doesn't mean that they're, that they're bad people. doesn't mean that they're, uh, they're evil or wicked or unbelievers. Um, John Chrysostom, greatest preacher probably to that point in the history of the church. He was the John MacArthur of his day and so uh, led countless people to Christ as an example. But let's start with Origen. He died in 254 AD. He held that the concept of election was, was too similar to fatalism. And that was a pagan concept. Fatalism says that uh, whatever happens is going to happen. And so he, he felt like that was too pagan. So for him, God looks down the corridors of time to see who will believe, and then he chooses them. Which again, as we've talked about before, leaves open the logical possibility that Christ died for no one in particular. No one at all. Origen held that in the, that in the end, 
everyone will choose God and be saved. Now, Origen has contributed a lot of good theology, but he was ultimately a universalist. You have John Chrysostom, who died in 407 AD. Um, He is called the golden-tongued one. That's what Chrysostom means. It's more of a nickname. Um, But he was... Uh, he believed in individual conditional election. So in other words, uh, there, are, there are Arminians who believe in election, but the election is you're elect once you choose God. Does that make sense? Uh, which, is, which is kind of uh, an oxymoron in, in a way. Then you have the semi-Pelagians of the 5th century. They believe that the doctrine of election leads to fatalism and that it contradicts human freedom. And what I mean by fatalism is simply the idea that, that humans have no freedom whatsoever, that we have zero freedom. And this leads to the errant belief that there is a class of human beings that wanted to choose God but would not be able to. And that class does not exist in Scripture. Um, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, Come unto me all who labor and are, and are heavy laden. So the Gospel call is given to all. So they believed that that they had to defend human freedom. Roman Catholicism holds that a person cooperates with God in the salvation and the election. They, if you ask a Roman Catholic what is election, they would say that is the reward for a life well lived. That now that you have earned your salvation, that you're in good standing with the church, most importantly, and God secondarily, then you are elect. But if you die outside of that grace, then you're sent to hell and you're not of the elect. So in other words, whether you're elect or not doesn't get determined until the day you die. And so you have that hanging over your head for your entire life. You have, as we've talked about before, classic Arminianism. Unconditional election is incompatible with human freedom, they would say. That if unconditional election is true, then you didn't make a real choice to... Uh, exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would say that prevenient grace nullifies the effects of original sin and allows all people to have the ability to respond to God's special grace. And remember, we said that prevenient grace has a good definition, that the, the uh, one that we hold to that says that God gives us uh, what we need in order to choose the Lord, but it's not built into us. It's a gift from him um, at a certain moment in time. The Armenian definition of prevenient grace says that you're basically born with that, that you have the ability to choose God, and it contradicts directly the doctrine of total depravity. Armenianism also says that the basis of divine election is on the basis of a person's character. In other words, that some people are more likely to choose God than others. Have you ever heard this phrase? Oh, that guy's so nice. I, I wish he would become a Christian. I know we even say that sometimes, but that's an Arminian phrase. You, you want to know what a Calvinist phrase is? That guy over there is a mass murderer. He's a serial killer, and God can save him. That's, a, that's truth. So I, I know there are people that we say, it's such a nice guy, it's a shame he's not a Christian. But think about the theology behind that. And then finally, Arminianism says that, again, God elects those whom he foresees will believe which puts God in a passive position, which he never is. You have John Wesley, probably the most famous uh, to deny the doctrine of election. He died in 1791. 
He said that unconditional election to life automatically means that there is unconditional election to death. That's uh, what some call double predestination. He couldn't accept this. In other words, that God has determined that certain people will go to hell regardless of their pleading and their begging to come to faith in Christ. And he couldn't accept that. Now, we would agree with that. And we'll get to an explanation of what, I, what we think the, the best view is. Um, we would agree with that. We would say that uh, God does not choose that somebody is going to go to hell no matter what they do as far as asking to be saved. Why would we, why would we reject that? Because that class of person does not exist. There is no class of person that's going to hell but wanted to come to faith in Christ. There is no such person. And there's no proof in Scripture anywhere that that is the case. Wesley also said that election undermines preaching and the gospel witness. Uh, he, in other words, if you believe in election, then why evangelize? Why preach the word? Everybody's just going to be saved anyway. Well, that leaves out the, the God's means of saving people. The means of saving people is prayer and preaching and evangelism, Right? And so he has ordained those means. A uh, little side note here. Well, let me get to that in a minute. He also said that election undermines personal godliness. That if you believe you're of the elect, then you're just going to live however you want. What's the alternative to that? The alternative is you'd better be a good person so that you don't lose your salvation. And I grew up in that system. It's a horrible system. It's oppressive. And I have family members that got to the point to where you can't have a real conversation with them. They cannot confess to sin. They not, cannot be real. They cannot be transparent. They cannot say, I'm struggling in this area. They present a facade of perfectionism because that's what they've been taught to do. And so uh, Wesley was the primary promulgator of this uh, it, beginning in the early 18 or the late 1700s. Now, uh, Wesley was saved. He loved the Lord. One of his dearest friends and greatest theological enemy was George Whitfield. George Whitfield and John Wesley were preaching about the same time. George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist in the history of the church, other than the Apostle Paul. You can look up some statistics, but Whitfield preached to tens of millions of people. He saw tens of thousands of people saved. This is in an era before uh, anything electronic, when you traveled for eight weeks to go from one continent to another, and yet he preached as a Calvinist, and he was the greatest evangelist ever in the history of the church. And so Wesley's idea that election undermines preaching in the gospel witness was proven wrong in his day. Um, and I don't remember which, but one of them preached at the other one's funeral. They were friends, but they were theologically at odds. And so that's, that's Wesley. So that's just kind of the history of, of election. And I wanted to start there. The problem that those who don't believe in election have is that it's clearly all over Scripture. And so trying to reconcile that has been difficult and trying to come to an understanding, well, how do I say that I believe everywhere of the Bible, but I don't believe election? Well, one of the ways that that has happened is the concept of corporate election. Corporate election 
says that the way we really define election is God's purpose to save a class of people who trust in Christ. And the logic goes something like this. Since Christ is the elect one, then all who are in Christ are considered elect. It leaves out the variable of how do you become in Christ, which for me is kind of the key question, right? Uh, Wherever you are, you kind of want to find out how you got there. Have you ever been driving and suddenly have no memory of the last hour? And, and you, you, what do you do? You rack your brain trying to remember that stoplight. Was it red? Did I go through it? Did I almost hit somebody? Instinctively, we want to know how we got there. So the idea that uh, since Christ is the elect one, those who are in Christ are considered elect, it's, it's kind of a, a wimpy way out of really not dealing with the issue. The idea of corporate election would also say that election is a corporate, not an individual matter. Now, let me be very clear about this. Is there such a thing as corporate election? I would say yes. Two big entities I can think of, Israel and who else? How about the church? That's right. But all corporate entities are made up of what? Individuals, people. That's right. But the idea of corporate election says that election is only corporate. It's not an individual matter. And frankly, that's not even logical, but that they, they come up with that. In the Old Testament, election was a reference to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, election is, is a reference to the church. Romans 9, 10, 11, they would say election is in reference to the nations, such as Israel, or representatives of nations. And so you begin to um, have to reinterpret some really obvious uh, texts. Corporate election is it's kind of an attempt to say, yes, I believe in election, but without really dealing with the individual question. Then you have the idea of double unconditional election. Some have called this high Calvinism. Medieval theologians and reformed theologians, or some medieval theologians rather, and, and, and many reformed theologians held to an unconditional election to both life and death. Uh, Some call this double predestination. That God predestines by his sovereign will those who will be saved, but he also predestines those who will be damned, those who will be judged. And that both elections, now this is very, very important, that both elections, election to salvation and election to damnation, are based in God's will only and not on any foreseen actions of humans. I'm going to give you a little hint here the means by which the elect go to heaven and the means by which the lost do not go to heaven are different. And so we'll get to that either today or next time. But some of those who held to double unconditional election, high Calvinism, uh, <clears throat> uh, some call that hyper-Calvinism. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli, he died in 1531. He was kind of the, the uh, Martin Luther of Switzerland. He said that election and reprobation, that is election to death, are two aspects of of the sovereign will of God. Now, how does it work together that, that yes, God chooses those who will go to heaven by default. He chooses those who will go to hell, but the means are different. Well, we'll get to that. Martin Luther died in 1546. Luther first believed in conditional election, but in the study of the Bible and the study of Augustine, Augustine made him switch his view to unconditional election He said that the bondage of the will makes election necessary. 
Um, but he was, he was on the double unconditional election side. John Calvin died in 1564. He said that God unconditionally predestines the majority of humanity to destruction. And, and so there isn't a choice um, whatsoever. Theodore Beza, who was kind of the protege of John Calvin, he died in 1605. Um, Beza is often regarded as the father of hyper-Calvinism, that this idea really uh, grew under him. And then John Bunyan, uh, famous for writing uh, Pilgrim's Progress, died in 1688. Bunyan believed double predestination was a logical necessity, but he also based that on the teaching of uh, Esau and Jacob, which is discussed in Romans chapter 9. That uh, when God says, I chose Jacob, I did not choose Esau. I hated, uh, I hated Esau, I loved Jacob. And, and we'll get to that issue. So those are some in, in history who have believed in double unconditional election. We're still in the kind of historic view here. Almost nobody believed in universal election. Now, there was origin, but his thinking on universalism didn't really catch on because it, nobody believed that at that time. But a theologian by the name of Karl Barth, it's uh, spelled with a T-H at the end, but pronounced Barth, uh, he was a universalist. Um, he actually has made some good contributions to Christian theology, but ultimately he believed that uh, the doctrine of election is in Scripture but can only be explained uh, adequately by everyone being elect. That was his belief. Then you had in history the, the belief in, I'm sorry, I didn't go to that slide, that I have one line on Karl Barth. It says Karl Barth, that's it. You had unconditional single election. Some would call this moderately reformed. Unconditional single election. This view is historically linked with Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430. He's he's known as the first church father to seriously address the doctrine of election or predestination. Now, uh, lest you think that, what was the church doing for 300 years? Mostly they were surviving so there isn't a lot of great theological thought, for example, from the year 200 uh, to the year 300 because the church was being persecuted and um, up until um, Constantine came along and made Christianity legal. But he was the first church father that really seriously addressed this issue. And one of the reasons this came about was because of a British monk by the name of Pelagius who said that uh, and he, and that's where we get the term Pelagianism, which says any human being at all is fully, utterly, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually capable of choosing God on a purely intellectual decision. That God has nothing to do with this, nothing to do with salvation at all. And of course, that Augustine took uh, umbrage with that, and so began his study and debated Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius uh, ultimately was uh, deemed a heretic by the church. Unconditional single election holds that there is a sovereign election to life, but not to death. In other words, God chooses those who will be saved, but not those who will be lost. That may seem like a mathematical quandary, and we we will get to that. It's probably not the best solution, but we're getting closer. Unconditional single election, moderately reformed, says election to life is unconditional, But reprobation to damnation is conditioned on human disobedience. Now we're getting closer. That there are two different means, two different ways that this happens. 
and unconditional single election says that God does not foreordain people to destruction in the same way that he foreordains them to eternal life. That God positively decrees the salvation of some persons while he permissively allows the, the, the damnation, the perdition of others. And so now, now we're getting a little bit closer. So that's just the history of election. Let me just take a little uh, rabbit trail number two here. Uh, the bigger issue is not debating why God would or could or should send some people to hell. If you believe in total depravity, which the Bible teaches very clearly that the intention of man's heart is evil continually, then the real question is, why and how can God choose anyone to go to heaven? That is the real question. That is such an important perspective because what I just described to you was a debate essentially about how kind, how righteous, how good is God? And ultimately, if you are a universalist, Ultimately, if you're only corporate election, ultimately, if you if you reject the doctrine of election at at a wholesale level, there is a sense in which, logically speaking, you have decided that you are more compassionate than God is, that God cannot send people to hell, that we cannot possibly believe in the God who sends people to hell. Jesus himself talked about hell a couple of dozen times in the Gospels. He portrays himself. He says in John 5 that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And we see him on the throne, the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, the Son of God throwing people into the lake of fire. And so to say God does not send people to hell is inaccurate. He is literally the one doing so. So we want to go with what Scripture says and let Scripture tell us who our God is, not our own sensibilities. Our own sensibilities, you can't trust them. So I just wanted to give you that little perspective that uh, God, according to moderate Reformed view, which we would be really, really close to, doesn't foreordain people to destruction. But if he did, he can, right? He is able to do that. So that's just some historical thoughts here. Let's start getting into the actual doctrine itself. And, and one of the really important things to do that is, I think, neglected a little bit too much is really just to look at the language, the terminology of election. Now, I'm going to just take one moment and determine about how far I want to get today so that we don't go too slow or too fast. Actually, uh, if we have extra time next week, we'll just do some, some Q&A. So let's do the terminology of election. And I know, this is, I know this is getting in the weeds. I know this is a lot of detail, but this is how you learn truth. This is how we understand. So, so some of the important terms, the first term, foreknowledge. We get our word uh, prognosis, uh, prognosco in Greek. In regard to salvation, foreknowledge almost certainly refers to a predetermined love relationship. That's what it's talking about, a predetermined love relationship. In Romans 8.29, prognosco, uh, foreknowledge, is linked to predestination. In 1 Peter 1.2, foreknowledge is linked to election. Only two times, listen carefully, only two times in all the New Testament, Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17, does the term prognosco refer to knowing something before it happens in a passive sense. 
That is not what almost ever what this word means. All the other references signify foreordination, causing something to happen before it happens, predetermination. So how do we, how do we think about this? If you're in a fender bender and you sort of, you ever have that sense that something is coming? Well, that, whatever that is, you know, maybe it's the fact that the truck behind you uh, backed out really fast and you had uh, a split second to go, I don't think this is going to be good. And wham, you get hit. You had foreknowledge, but it was passive. There was nothing you could do. Prognosco is the orchestrating of circumstances such that those two things are going to collide together. You have caused it. You've made it happen. Prognosco would be, you see that truck behind me? He's been, he cut me off in traffic, parked right behind me. We're going to have a collision. Three, two, one, boom. That's prognosco. You see the difference? We cannot make it passive because it, it only means something passive twice. And those are definitely exceptions. So there's that that terminology. So you can't say that foreknowledge is that God knew what men would do. That is not what prognosco means. You have the word predestined. And this is one that that gets people's ire up even more. Praoridza, it means, or praoridzo rather, it means to determine beforehand. Now we get a little bit more obvious. You have Acts 4, 27 and 28, Romans 8, 29 and 30, Ephesians 1, 5 and and 11. To determine beforehand, there is no sense in which this word means to know something that will happen that I didn't make happen. It never means that. Now, um, rabbit trail number three. What does this take us to? This takes us to our bibliology. Do we believe in what we call verbal plenary inspiration, meaning that every word and the whole of Scripture is inspired? Do we believe Jesus when he said that every dot of the I, every cross of the T, to put it in our terms, um, is, is ordained by God and will not pass away? Do we believe that? If you believe that, then terms are important, right? There are other terms that the apostles could have chosen to speak of passive knowledge, but they didn't use those terms. And so predestined always means to determine beforehand. It never means to know what's going to happen beforehand. Then you have, of course, the the hottest button term, that is the term election. In the Old Testament, you have the, the Hebrew term bahar, and it means to elect or to choose, and it's derivatives, They occur 198 times in the Old Testament. God chooses Psalm 135, 4. Did I miss predestination? I'm sorry. I didn't go on to the next. I apologize. I usually have these highlighted and I don't have highlights in this one. 198 times God chooses Psalm 135, 4. A people. And you'd say, aha, corporate election. We already said corporate election exists, but there's also individual election. Certain tribes. Oh, here we go. Psalm 78, 68, that God chooses certain tribes. 1 Kings 8, 16, 1 Chronicles 28, God chooses specific individuals. The Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, incredibly scholarly source that isn't 
isn't theologically biased. It just tells us the history of the use of a word. And Bahar, according to the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, quote, everywhere that Bahar occurs in relationship to persons, it denotes choice out of a group, generally out of the totality of the people, meaning there is a large group and some of them are chosen and others are not. It always means that. In the New Testament, the verb eklegomai and the uh, noun eklektos, they're each found 22 times. The primary emphasis of this term is on election to salvation. It's where we get our term election. And when somebody says, well, election isn't in the Bible, it literally is where we got the, the word. It's where we get this. So those are important terms. And that's a, that's a pretty hefty one, two, three punch there, just on those three terms. Now, let me back up and get a little bit more broad. I want to just uh, show you some categories of election, and, and this might be helpful to you. I don't think you need to remember a lot about this, just to just maybe get some references. I'm just going to go through some lists here. You have election to service. And I, the reason this is important, just to rabbit trail number four, if you say, well, I don't believe that God chooses people for salvation, Let's say that an Arminian pastor says that. I don't believe that God chooses people for salvation. Well, Arminian pastor, how did you become a a minister of the gospel? And an Arminian pastor will say, well, God chose me to do this. God called me to do this. Well, whose will was this? Well, this was God's. Did you want to be a pastor? Not particularly, but God chose me to do this. So you're saying that God chooses people to be pastors, but not to be saved. So you begin to get into the realm of, well, God chooses some things, but not other things. Now you're in trouble. So election to service is important. On several occasions, God chose certain people for specific tasks or roles. I gave you all those references. I'll tell you who they are. Moses was chosen for leadership. Number 16. Eli's father was chosen for priestly functions. uh, 1 Samuel 2. David was chosen to be Israel's king, 1 Samuel 10. How did David get chosen to be king? He was just out in the fields minding his own business, and he was chosen. Solomon was chosen as king, and he was chosen to build the temple, 1 Chronicles 28.4. Jeremiah was chosen for prophetic ministry, uh, Jeremiah 1.10. Now, this will um, put a, a wrench in the works of Arminianism, but... <clears throat> Jeremiah says, or the, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's election. Not only was Jeremiah elected to perform a service, um, if he's chosen from the womb, like John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, then he's also chosen for salvation. That's a good question to ask. Do you believe Jeremiah, according to that verse, chapter, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, was chosen by God to be a prophet? Yes. Was he chosen for salvation? Well, no, he had to choose that later. Oh, oh, okay, so he's a prophet of God, but he may or may not be saved. Now, if they say, well, that's possible, uh, just to be snarky, you can't say you're right, because John Wesley was evangelizing long before he was converted. And John Wesley himself would say that. little side history note there. You have Zerubbabel was chosen for leadership. Haggai chapter 2, the Levitical priesthood chosen for, for ministry. Why is the tribe of Levi chosen for, for uh, the, the ministry of the priesthood? 
God never says. He just says, Levi will be the ones to do this. Kings are chosen to govern. Deuteronomy 17, Jesus is called the chosen one of God, the elect one to do his will. Jesus chose his apostles to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus, John 15, 16, chooses his own followers. And again, I I feel like that our God is big enough that if he, what he really meant was I'll choose those who are going to choose me, that that's what he would say. But he didn't say that. And so you have election to service. You have, again, corporate election, which we believe in, but just not as its own entity all by itself. You have the nation of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. There's no getting around that. I'll read you a few others. God chose Israel to privilege and service. 1 Kings 3, Psalm 132. Israel's election wasn't based on merit, but solely on God's sovereign and purposeful love. Exodus 32. Book of Ezekiel says that that Israel was like an illegitimate baby thrown out into the field and God came and snatched her up and saved her. The calling of God is irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty eight and 29, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's pretty hard to get over for anybody who says that Israel is done in God's plan. Bruce Demarest in his book, The Cross and Salvation, he says this, quote, analysis of the data leads to the conclusion that the primary focus of election in the Old Testament is corporate, the selection of a people for the praise of Yahweh. God's purpose in the Old Testament appears to have been to differentiate the nation Israel, chosen, blessed, and commissioned from her godless and pagan nations. And so, yes, we believe in corporate election, absolutely. Does that mean that every single person Um, descended from Abraham is saved. It does not mean that. Romans 9, 6 says that all of Israel is not Israel. You have the corporate election, of course, of the church. The church is also a community that's chosen by God. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen race. Again, you cannot work another definition into the word chosen. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. By the way, did you catch this? We, we said this um, all the way back in Deuteronomy 7, that Israel is his treasured possession. We're now using kind of Old Testament-y type language. We're also his chosen possession. You catch the link between election and possession? Why can God choose you? Because he owns you. And he always has. Psalm 24, 1 says that the earth is the Lord and the full is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning everything in it. So we can do what he wants. If first Peter two, nine and ten is a reference to the church, which it is, it describes the church with a language that we used of Israel in the Old Testament. What what a great comparison chosen generation royal priesthood holy nation called out people people of god this does not mean that the church is israel it means that the church is a lot like israel in that regard and the emphasis of the new testament regarding the election of the church is an election to salvation the old testament the corporate election emphasis is that you are my chosen nation in the new testament you are my chosen people all over the world 
and, and we've said this before, but what was Israel's ordained means of, we would call it evangelism? It is to attract people magnetically to the nation. What is God's ordained means of evangelism for the church? To scatter and spread the gospel of Christ. And so it's a different strategy. So there's corporate election. But is there personal election? Well, apparently not. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. There we go. Is there personal election? Sorry for the small writing, but I'm just going to, I just want to read some scripture to you. Okay, that way I won't go wrong. Personal election in the Old Testament. First of all, God sought Adam and Eve after their sin. He provided them with the covering of animal skins. Did you ever think about that? Did Adam and Eve ask for salvation? They did not. They did not ask for mercy. They made excuses and they lied. But God went after them and he covered their sin. God sought Noah. Genesis 6, 8. Noah found favor. We get the word grace from this in the eyes of the Lord. How about Abraham? God chose Abraham to be the father of Israel to bring blessings to all the nations of the earth. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis 18, 19 says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. And this is the word yada in Hebrew, chosen. It means to know that God sovereignly knew who he would choose. Again, it's the, it's the New Testament, or the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament concept. It's not that God knew that Abraham would choose him. Read Genesis 12 and see if there's any hint that Abraham looked around at all the, the pagan deities that he grew up with in Ur of the Chaldees and said, you know, these are all bogus. I think there's an invisible God not represented here that I'm going to go look for. No. God spoke to him and chose him. How about Moses? Exodus thirty-three seventeen. The Lord spoke to Moses. You have found favor in my sight. I have known you. Yada, by name. I have chosen you. I've gone after you. How about Isaac? God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, to be the child of promise. Abraham even said, look, Ishmael's right here. Let's just make him the child of promise. And God said, no. How about Jacob? God chose Jacob over Esau. Romans 9 says this. About Psalm 65, 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And again, Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew, yada, I chose you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That's the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 5, 21, Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John thirteen eighteen. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Uh, how, you know, 
I, I don't know how to, how to explain that to somebody who refuses to believe it. I mean, a, a first grader can understand that. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Acts thirteen forty eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, meaning the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, not as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Just slight rabbit trail number five, aha moment here. Foreknowledge and predestination are linked at the hip. Yes, God knows who's going to choose him because he's determining that they will choose him. That's how he knows that. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called. He also justified those whom he justified. He also glorified past tense. What does that mean? Election always ends in heaven every time. Romans nine eleven through 13. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. This is speaking of Jacob and Esau in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Rabbit trail number six. We could, make the, we could make the case that Esau, you will see him in heaven. When God says I hated him, it doesn't mean I had a loathing towards him. It means that he is not the chosen line. Christ did not come from Jacob or from Esau. He came from Jacob. That's a little side issue. But when was that choice made? At the very least, when they were in the womb. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How did he choose us? According to the purpose of his will. He predestined us for adoption as sons. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. In 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ. And that's speaking of the, the fact that the elect will finish, they will consummate their salvation. How about 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Then he lists a bunch of provinces according to the foreknowledge of God. And in Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, meaning Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you catch that? There is a book of life of the Lamb who was slain written before the foundation of the world. Conclusion, to deny personal election is to deny the Bible. You cannot possibly explain all of that away. There's no way. I think that'd be a good place to end. So how about uh, one or two questions if you you have them? Is that too harsh to deny elections, deny the Bible? I mean, we just read two dozen verses. So what questions do you have? Yeah, uh, Darletta and then Logan.
just to get conversation going. Should we talk about the doctrine of election with, with the unbeliever? Uh, you know, I've debated that. I don't see an example of that in Scripture. I, I think that's like talking about marriage with your two-year-old. You know, you, you talk about the things that they need. Because the choice to come to faith in Christ, and we'll get to this, is a real choice. It's not 100% free will. We're just as free as a bunch of goldfish in an aquarium. They're free within those confines to do things. But when you came to faith in Christ, it, nobody, you, does anybody here think that your arm was behind you? Okay, you're going to be a Christian. No, you made a real choice. And so that's, the, that's, the, that's what you present to the unbeliever, that you need to repent and you need to come to faith in Christ. Now we know our secret weapon is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that the, the doctrine of regeneration says that as you're sharing the gospel, you can be praying, Holy Spirit, do your work. Do your, do your work. So I, I, think that's a, I think it's a better later conversation. Do you know why you're saved? Because God chose you to be. Oh, that's amazing. So Logan, you had a question. Sure. So if there, if somebody's denying that the word of God is in fact the word of God, then then the question goes backwards some to well, what's your source of authority? So right now, what you're saying is is that this is your opinion versus the Bible. Would you say that the Bible is mildly more sophisticated than your opinion? I, most people would say, well, yeah. So, so uh, just read these verses and you just give them a list of verses and just say, just go read these. Because again, what we know is that the word of God is a two-edged sword, that it is powerful and mighty. And that, that that's what penetrates people's souls. I don't think you can have that conversation in five minutes and convince somebody um, if, if their view of the Bible is off, it means their view of God is off. Uh, I don't think you can be a Christian and think that the Bible is not inerrant. I just don't believe that. Um, because now you've denied the source of authority. If you have no source of authority, then you are your source of authority, which is by definition idolatry, and idolaters go to hell. So uh, if you can kind of follow that logic. So just have them read scripture. Okay, so you say it's a good book written by men. That's great. I, I won't even argue that. Just go read that good book written by men. You know, there are book clubs for people who read Shakespeare, for people who read all kinds of things. So say, well, let's just pretend it's a book club and go read the Bible. And that's okay. Good question. I need to be done. But we'll have time next time because we'll, uh, what we'll get into is predestination and double predestination, how that kind of works. Let me pray for us briefly. Thank you, Father, for, uh, boy, we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of ground this morning, but my biggest encouragement, and I pray that it's the encouragement for everyone here, Lord, is a sense of awe and humility. Because in all of the Bible, in, in our searches of Scripture, and in the searches of Scripture made for centuries by great men and women of God, only one reason is ever given for election, in love. And so we thank you for your love your electing love and we praise you lord and may it elevate our worship where you receive all glory where you become greater and we become less and we pray in christ's name amen